be a little bit taller than Ray, if that's okay. Good morning all, my name is uh, Steve Adams, I'm the pastor here at at Eastgate Bible Church. We thank you for getting up earlier than normal to uh, come and celebrate uh, this day. Let us just open up in prayer before we have a look at God's word. Heavenly Father, it seems so foreign and strange that a death would be something that we can celebrate, and even more so that we would call it good news, that we would call today a Good Friday. Uh, Yet there is a very rich good news for every single one of us in your death and what it achieved. Lord, I pray that this morning that that good news will be clearly made known to every single one of us, that it will either be a point of celebration or it will be an invitation to be welcomed into that good news. And Lord, I ask that you help me to speak clearly and Lord, that you'd use my words to achieve your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a funny concept, isn't it? Can you imagine what everyone else thinks that we are celebrating someone dying? Like I, I imagine when I die, 2,000 years later, people aren't going to be holding special memorial service and remembering Steve has died. They're not even going to remember who Steve is. And even more so, you think, Jesus is the most central person to how, to the Christian faith, and we're celebrating his death. You wonder why people think we're a little bit weird. One of the saddest funerals I've ever been to, I think it was actually the last funeral I attended, was a guy I was involved as doing chaplaincy type ministry in a prison who I'd come to know through the Bible studies I led there and had regular contact when he got out, had some struggles with uh, mental health in quite a, uh, in a big way and ended up taking his own life. And in that funeral, I sat, not knowing this, I sat directly behind his girlfriend and his daughter. And throughout that service, his daughter is screaming and howling. He never said goodbye. She's wondering what happened. What could have been? Now, the answer to that question of why for this young fellow was probably pretty sad and tragic. But that question of why did Jesus have to die is actually something that we rejoice in. There is hope for every single one of us. Now, normally my approach as I uh, teach from the Bible is we just walk, go through the actual passages that we've just had read. But rather than just explain what has been there, which I think was pr- quite clear as it was as it was read, if you just read this in isolation on its own, you might think, the poor fella. he done nothing wrong. Look what happened to him. Look how nicely he didn't even respond in a nasty way. But there's a bigger picture, so that's kind of what I hope to do this morning. Think of, was Jesus' life cut short? Is it like a tragic end to something that could have been more special? Why did he die? And what on earth did he mean when he says, it is finished? So firstly, was it Jesus' death? One of those times we think it's a tragic end, a good life cut short. How much more could have happened? Is that the question we should be asking? Because if you imagine it like this, Imagine there was a 33-year-old Australian fella. Decides he's going to move somewhere overseas. He's got big grand plans of things that he's going to do. Life is looking good. Yet when he arrives, there's a corrupt official who wrongly accuses him, hands him the death sentences, 
and has this guy executed. Now you imagine how that's going to play out in the Australian media, don't you? It's going to be all over the news, your Sunday night current affairs type programs, long lengthy interviews with family members in tears, all talking about what could have been, how his life was so tragically cut short. Is that how we should think about Jesus' death? I mean, after all, there are some parallels. For those who've been here in the the weeks leading up to today, we've been going through John's Gospel. That's one of the biographies of Jesus' life and seeing the events that have led up to this moment now when he's been crucified. And the Roman governor Pilate, who's the one who's got the authority to have him crucified, keeps saying, I don't want to bar it. Four times he says, this man is not guilty. And he's trying to release him. And at the same time, it's the Jewish religious leaders who keep crying out, crucify him, crucify him. So was Jesus' life and plans tragically cut short? Should we be left wondering, was his best yet to come? The Bible says Jesus' plan and Jesus' life was not cut short. The Bible also says very clearly too, his plans were not destroyed. In fact, if you look at Jesus' own words, his death was the plan. So how he describes it in, in the Gospel of Mark, verses 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when Jesus laid out what his plans and his purpose and his goal was, he says, my goal is to lay my life down. It's part of his plans, why he came. Or on another occasion, as recorded in Luke's Gospel, he goes further than saying, this is my purpose, this is my goal. He says, the Son of Man must, you know, it's essential, it's necessary that he suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So it's his plan. From his perspective, he says, it's necessary, this is non-negotiable, this must happen. But from the reading from Mark's gospel, he says, the Son of Man came to do these things. Now that's not normally a way which you'd refer to if you just happen to have come to existence. You're born the normal way. I don't say I came into this world in that sense, that I came to do this. It says something a little bit more of his identity as someone who's not just been born, but someone who's come from somewhere into this world. In John's Gospel that we've had read beforehand, this is how he's introduced at the beginning. It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So whoever this Word is, it says he's both with God, and that he is God, and that he created all things. Now from a Christian perspective, there is one God, so what, this idea of there being a God who is with God, but he's expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, which is Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And to tell us who this word is in verse 14, just a little bit further down that same chapter, the word, that's the one who's been described as the one who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is this Son who is God, who has taken on flesh and has entered into our world. This is something that sets Christianity entirely distinct from every other religion. 
Every other religion says God is far away, high and mighty, but he's not coming in close to us. The Bible says the word became flesh and he came into our world. And I think something must have been pretty important. To be in a place where everything's perfect, to come into our world with all of its pain and all of its struggles. Now Jesus said this was his goal that he's going to die, that it's his purpose, that it was necessary. But when he says he talks about laying down his life, it sounds like something he's doing, isn't it? It's not only is it his purpose and his goal, but he's the one who's orchestrating it and he's the one who's in control. Earlier in the same Gospel of John, this is how he speaks about it. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I've got authority to lay it down, I've got authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So when we're talking about Jesus' death, we don't think, oh no, the Romans killed him, they took away his life. Jesus said way before there was even a plan to have him killed, this is why I've come, this must happen, and he says, I'm the one who's laying it down, I will take it up again. Even from the reading that we've just had, we see that same idea that he's in control. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken, he gave up his spirit. So there's something about his death that's not only very necessary, it's part of his plan, his intention, but something he's very intentional about how it is done. So if Jesus' death is his necessary goal, everything that he's aimed for, his purpose, the reason why he came, then you certainly can't say his life was cut short. If anything, it makes more sense of his claim when he says it is finished because the very thing he set out to achieve has taken place. That makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is, why was he so set on dying? Why did he die? It's all well and good to say he wanted to do this, it was essential. But if there's no reason for it, then it's just pretty sad and tragic, isn't it? Jesus said he must be killed. Why he came? Why? Another way he spoke of his mission in John's Gospel, in John 19, verse 10, he says, the Son of Man, that's a term that he used to refer to himself, of Jesus Christ, came to seek and save the lost. That sounds pretty abstract, doesn't it? To seek and save the lost. I mean, firstly, what does he mean by lost? And how does he save them? Now, all of us at some point, unfortunately, when we were kids, who's had that experience? You're out with mum and dad, you've gone down to the shops, and you get lost. Now, our two-year-old hasn't got to that point where, they, where you have a kid howling in the shops yet, but it'll happen one day, I'm sure. But just think about the mechanics of how that happens. The kid goes down to the shops with their mum or their dad. Their mum or dad has said, okay, just stay close to me. Now, the kid knows that being in the presence of the one who brought them into the world is one of the safest places they can be. They know their mum's good, and they've been caring for them all the time up until this point in time. But when you go to the shops, there's this wicked thing called the lolly aisle or the toy aisle. And even though the kid may not necessarily think about it in this way, what happens is that they know mum's good. You know, honouring mum's a good thing. They know that the safety in her presence. 
But the lolly aisle, the toy aisle, there's something that seems so much better over there than, than what has normally been the case of honouring mum and being in her presence. So they pursue the lolly aisle, the toy aisle. Everything seems exciting until they look around. Then it's panic. Now notice something. Nothing's happening to them. They're just, they're in the place they thought was the best place to be. Yet they panic. And the reason why they panic is they can't see their mum or dad. Because for some reason it is inwardly inbuilt to a child that the safest and most loving place they can be is in the presence of the one who brought them into the world. And when they can't see it, they panic, even though there's no actual threat at hand. It's not until after they've decided to turn their back on mum or dad to pursue what they thought seemed better that they realise that they're lost. It's not very much different when you look at the beginning of the Bible, is it? You see the first two people God made, Adam and Eve, enjoying the presence of God, the safest, most loving place to be, perfect relationships, all the things we don't like about this world didn't exist. There was no hostility, there was no wars, there was no sadness, there was no death. And then Satan comes along in the form of a servant. God's blessed them with everything they need to enjoy his presence and all of his good creation. He's just said one thing. There's this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from this, you will die. And as Satan comes along as a serpent, he gives them the lolly proposition. That's not going to happen. You're not going to die. This is what you need. This is going to make you like God. And in that moment, they do exactly what a little kid does down at the shops. They know that being in the presence of God is the best and safest place to be. They know that what God says to them is for their good. But in a little moment, it seems far more pleasing them to do what they want and to pursue that. And at that moment, they, their things and their relationship with God were broken. That's what the Bible calls sin. Now, we think of sin as being particular horrific acts or things that people do. The word sin simply means to miss the mark. And by missing the mark, it doesn't mean not reaching a particular standard of living by certain actions, but missing the mark, failing to be who we were created to be. And who we were created to be was in a relationship with God under his loving rule. Because everything he's given to us is for our good. And what we see happens for Adam and Eve is they are banished out of the garden, out of the presence of God. We see the curses of sin, all of the evil that we see in this world is the result of that. But the Bible also tells us that every single one of us have received that same corruption, that it is our natural default state to think, I don't need God, I'm just going to do it my own way. That's what sin is. Sin isn't just specific horrific actions. Now, we get so offended when we hear the word sin and go, no, I've lived a pretty good life. It's not whether or not you've done good things. It's whether or not you have given God the honour to which he genuinely deserves. Just like it was clear to Adam and Eve before they did it, they were told in advance, if you eat this, you will die. There will be actual physical death, but there will be spiritual death. You are separated from the life of the one who gives you life. And there is punishment. In the same way, every single one of us have been told the same thing. 
And every single one of us, if guilty of doing the same thing, is living as though we're the king, that we know what's best. Romans 3.23, Paul writes, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty. All of us have decided, God, you're not worth honouring. I call the shots. I'll do it better. That verse also goes on to say, and have been justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it says all sinned, that is all are guilty of turning our backs on God. That sounds legal in its wording. But it says, and are justified is another legal term. So we were guilty. Justified means to be legally declared right. So we go from guilty, we can be legally declared right, and the means by which we are declared right is through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Too many big Bible words again. Redemption means to pay the price to set someone free. It was used in that era when there were slaves in the Roman Empire. You would pay a price and that slave was set free. They were no longer a slave. So all of sin, all were guilty, can be justified, declared right, because of some payment somehow that Jesus has done. What do I mean? What's Jesus done? How has he paid? And how? what's he do to declare us right? A few chapters later, Paul writes, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we all know what wages are. We probably all get them, or the majority of us get them. Wages are what you receive in order for doing particular things, aren't they? In your workplace, you do certain things, you get your wages. And what the Bible says is what you receive for sin, which is choosing to reject God and not honour him as God, doing our own thing, is death. And because all of us sinned, all of us were headed to receiving the inheritance of our decisions, which is death, separation from God under his judgment. Now it starts to make sense why we speak of Jesus' death as the greatest act of love. Because the death that he died is not because he was guilty. The death that he died was on behalf of sinful people. He paid our price on our behalf. It's hard to think about. We were the guilty ones. The one to which our guilt was against was against God. He comes into the world and doesn't give us what our deserve. He comes into the world to bear our punishment for us so that we can be set free, so we can be who we were created to be in right relationship with him. Hence why Jesus says, I came to lay down my life as a ransom for many, to pay the debt for the guilty. And both Romans 3 and 6 speak of this as being a free gift. In other words, it's not about you doing particular things. It's something that Jesus has done to pay in full. He's done it all. It's not a case of building up a list of things that you've done to earn it. It's entirely by what Jesus has done on the cross, dying our death on our behalf so that we are no longer considered guilty. The Bible says when we are justified, we are given the righteousness of Christ. That is, his rightness is accredited to us, so when we stand before God on Judgment Day, we stand before him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if, it was, if our sin was turning our back on God, the way in which we receive this free gift 
It's firstly being sorry for not giving God the honour he has and expressing that to him. Giving thanks that he's paid the penalty on our behalf, but if we're saying we're sorry that we've turned our back and we haven't honoured you as God, then we're going to start wanting to live rightly with him as our ruler, honouring him as our God, the one to whom we truly belong. Now we see why Jesus said it was his goal and was necessity that he would die because there's no other way which we could have been restored to who we were supposed to be in relationship with God. There was either two options. Either we pay the penalty for our own sin or Jesus does it for us. Hence why Jesus says, on the cross, it is finished. Everything that needs to be done in order to to deal with the problem of our sin has been done. Now you think about the Old Testament. That's before Jesus came. They would... They recognised that they were wrong, not right before God. They would, they would sacrifice animals, yet they'd have to keep doing that year after year after year because they'd keep sinning and they'd keep having to do these things. But now that this is Jesus who has been the ultimate sacrifice, this is God bearing our punishment in full, never needs to be repeated again, nor is there any limit to the extent of the forgiveness that's available there. I don't care what any single person has done, Jesus has died a death for all sin, to all who would trust in him. To take away the guilt, take away the consequences. We've seen the wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid that price on our behalf. Everything that needs to be done for salvation is done. It's hard to think about, isn't it? We were guilty. We offended God. God came into this world not to give us what we deserve, but to pay the price so that we could be forgiven. And he did that. As we know, you you don't even need to be a Christian to be familiar with the concept. The way he died was a very, very cruel death. Yet the Bible says this about it. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now we know the sort of bloody nature of his death. It was cruel, it was torture. Yet for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, for what it would achieve, it was brought him joy. The outcome brought him joy. He put up with it. Because there is great joy in God to seek and to save. Now you often hear people say, oh, God's always against us. You think so? that he would endure such punishment in order to fill us with the blessings of a right relationship with him and an eternity with him. And this is described as a free gift. You know what the saddest thing is at Easter? It's not that Jesus died. The saddest thing at Easter is that people reject that free gift. It's like when you maybe go down to Grand Central or if you're in the city and you're near one of the popular train stations and people are handing out something free. And there's something within this thing that if it's worthwhile, people don't give you stuff for free. So without even looking at it, we just decide we don't need it. And I think that's sometimes the way people think about Jesus. Don't need it. Thanks, no thanks. But Jesus' death is clearly important. Now, the Apostle Paul... He was a guy who hated Christians. He was actually having them killed until he came to trust in Jesus himself. And this is what he says. For 
For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is what he thinks is first of importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures. The most important thing he says anyone could ever hear is that Christ died for sins. Why? Because all have sinned. This is the most important thing that every one of us needs dealt with. It's the most important thing in his message. Peter says similar words, Christ also suffered once for sins. Doesn't need to be done again. It was comprehensive. Everything that needs to be done has been done. The righteous, that's God, in the place of the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Our natural desire is to turn our back on God, not honour him as God, do our own thing. We've seen the wages of that sin, of not honouring him, is death. Yet the, what do we see in the desire of Jesus? It's not to give us a flogging, give us the punishment we deserve. The desire of Jesus is to be our substitute, to, to forgive, to restore and to save. To all who will come before him and say, sorry for the way I've rejected you. I'm trusting that you have borne the penalty on my behalf and I want to live for you for the rest of my life. I thank you that you've forgiven my sin. I thank you that all the guilt for everything I've ever done, you've taken away. Peter said, Jesus suffered once. Nothing more needs to be done to bring us to God. That's the celebration. We were all headed towards receiving the wages of our actions and that was death, judgment, without hope. Paul shows us the way things change which we're almost going to finish here on Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we were dead. We were doing our own thing. And even while we were living as hostile enemies of God, he came and he bore the punishment on our behalf in order that we could forgive us, that we could be in relationship with him. Now we don't want to just place our trust in someone who's dead and snuffed it as they, because that'd be a waste of time. Hence why we have Easter Sunday, and hence why that's the, the peak of the celebration. We'll speak of the importance of Jesus had said beforehand that he must die. He also said, must be raised on the third day. Because if we're going to trust that by his death, he's got some sense victory over death, and he's got some sense victory over sin, then we want to see evidence of that. And as he is raised on the third day, we'll see that he has got power and victory over sin. That he has got power and the ability to raise to new life, to, to give us what he has promised for us and for all who trust in him. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it makes absolutely no sense in the world in which we live for someone to do something for the benefit of someone who was offended them. Our natural Desires I tend to want to, to get revenge. Yet every single one of us 
You are our creator. You have given us everything for our good. Yet still we keep deciding we're going to turn our back on the one who, who has created us, who gives all things for our good, and decide that we're going to call the shots ourselves, that we're going to be the king. We're going to make all, all the decisions. And then by doing that, we're basically saying we don't need you. We, matter of fact, we think you're a waste of time. That we live effectively as enemies of you. Yet the punishment of death to which we're all due, you came and you took that on our behalf so that we could have our sins entirely dealt with. We could be forgiven, our guilt taken away, we could be declared right in your sight and have an eternity with you. We thank you that you are so much not like us. We thank you for your love. We thank you that this is a free gift. It's not for elite people who live to a particular standard, but just those who would simply trust in you and live for you. And we thank you that you've done this for us because you are our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.